Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others, well, hell, most police officers, use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. Better start thinking of something, Bosch, Buck said. We could have settled this six months ago for 50 grand. The way things are going, that would have been nothing. Bosch turned and looked at him. They were at the railing of the defense table. You believe it, don't you? The whole thing. I killed him, then we planted everything connected him to it. Doesn't matter what I believe, Bosch. Fuck you, Belk. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast. Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. Now all that's out of the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 9 through 12 of The Concrete Blonde. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explore how just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong, shaped chapters five through eight of The Concrete Blonde. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters nine through 12. As always, there's a prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens, so proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Judge Keyes admits the dollmaker's note as evidence and Belk commits a cardinal sin. Never ask a question to which you don't already know the answer. Chandler calls Warzik who testifies he worked with Norman Church for 12 years and knew him well. Warzik also testifies that he knew for a fact that the 11th victim could not be attributed to Church because he had a videotape of him and Church at a bachelor party together the night she was killed. After court was ended for the day, Harry goes to add advice and finds Ray Moore. Moore advised Bosch that Magna Cum Laude, real name is Rebecca Kaminsky, and she had only been dead for two years or less because of the date of the video. Moore also tells Bosch that Rebecca had a tattoo 
of Yosemite Sam on the left side of her buttocks. Back at Parker Center, Bosch meets up with Edgar and they go through a stack of missing person reports. Bosch leaves and heads back to court. Upon arriving late, Bosch noticed that Chief Irving was on the stand. Chandler asked Irving a number of questions, culminating to the revelation that Bosch's mother was herself a prostitute, which puts in question Bosch's motives concerning the shooting of Norman Church. Chandler's next witness, Dr. John Locke, the USC psychologist and expert on sexual perversions, is questioned why he did not include Norman Church in his book. On cross-examination, Belk successfully draws out that between aberrant sexual behavior, these murders strive to blend in normally with society. During this testimony, Bosch noticed that Jerry Egger had entered the courtroom. After court had adjourned for the day, Egger tells Bosch that he found a mission report concerning Rebecca Kaminsky. Bosch noticed that the report was a cover your ass report. A Tom Cerrone had reported that he was Rebecca's roommate and she went missing after going on a date. Bosch decides to take a run at Thomas Cerrone and enters his name into the California Department of Justice Information Network. As expected, he got a hit on Cerrone, who was 40 years old and had been shown to be popped nine times in many years for soliciting for prostitution and twice for pandering. After some investigative efforts, Bosch tracks down Cerrone who lives at the Grandview Apartments in Sherman Oaks. At the apartment, Bosch gets into a confrontation with Sharon, who relents and advises Bosch that both times he recalled the caller stating that, I have special needs tonight. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 9 through 12 is, I'm all in a sea of wonders. I doubt. I fear. I think strange things, which I dare not confess to my own soul. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast. Hey, Bosch. Today, we start this episode off with the ebbs and flows of trial. You know, I look at a trial as waves on a beach. You know, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. The tide comes in, the tide goes out. You make great points with the jury, and sometimes the defense makes great points with the jury, you know, just back and forth. And you just hope that the, the evidence that you presented can withstand that, that, that tide of, you know, of the rising tide or that tide, that constant pounding of the, um, of the defense against the evidence that you, pre- that you presented. And, you know, we get into the fact about how now Belk has walked into a trap that Chandler did yesterday, you know, in the book. 
And Michael Conley explains it as maybe he was dazed because he got uh, a bad ruling from the judge. That happens. You know, we all, the judges aren't up there and going to be just this rubber stamp for the government. They are supposed to be an impartial arbiter of the truth. And so sometimes you get bad rulings. So sometimes you get a ruling from the bench and um, you got to deal with it and you can't let that stop you. And we see the difference between um, what well, we see Belk right here because he walked into a trap that uh, Chandler had laid for him. And, you know, this trap was that Chandler had um, bought a friend of Norman Church to really pretty much uh, bring out the fact that they have video evidence that Norman was not present for the death of the, uh, or the murder of the 11th victim. And well, one of the things that, again, this is why, you know, the uh, Michael Conley being so authentic, because, you know, in the book, you know, the, the, the individual I think is like, is uh, Warzik. He was on the stand talking. And again, from the book, the police said the girl, the 11th one went to some hotel and got herself killed. Norma was with me at one o'clock in the morning. You know, that fact that people seem to blame the victim, that, that again, that's why one of the things that, you know, just the, the great writing of uh, Michael Connolly and, the, and the, how he must have immersed, and he continues to immerse himself into the life of the whole, just the law enforcement community, because we get that all the time. But for she was wearing a, a dress, a short dress, but for the type of makeup she was on, uh, wearing the but for she was in a bad location at the wrong time. Let's go with but for the asshole who committed the crime. You know? <laughs> you know? But that happens. You will be amazed how many people, you know, I, 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 I'm not a psychologist or a, psych, uh, a psychiatrist, but it must be something in, in um, makeup of people to explain the bad the badness and or to get some type of degree of control is for them to blame the victim. Again, you see it all the time when I'm interviewing people. Oh, excuse me. I saw it tons of times when you're interviewing people about a particular crime. And the fact is that how they blame the victim. And again, one of the, I like this because I talked about it before in other books. And again, uh, I just, I'm not setting you guys up and I love how, this is why I'm doing this podcast, because the things that I was saying in the past couple of episodes are still uh, coming to uh, are coming to fruition here. Because while Belk is interviewing um, Wazorik, you know, he goes into great lengths to say, you know, I interviewed you 95 pages of testimony, Mr. Wazorik, and, you know, in your transcripts, and you never mentioned a bachelor party. Why is that? And again, his answer is, is classic. Because you didn't ask. And <laughs> like I think I said in the last podcast, or so far in this book, if you don't ask, I said, it, I said it in, I think, the very first podcast of The Concrete Blonde. If you don't ask questions, people don't divulge information. So you got to ask questions a thousand different ways. And again, I told you, you know, at times when I came home, my wife said, okay, turn that cop shit off. <laughs> you know, we're going to the movies. Cause I was like, what movies? Where? What time? <laughs> and she, that, that right there at the beginning of our relationship was uh, a definitely a buzzkill. And you know, after the, um, 
the evidence was emitted with the video, the videotape or whatever, because it was very important. It's very big. And, you know, Bosch is out, uh, smokes some cigarettes and Honey Chandler comes out and he goes pretty much, you tricked him. You know, she says, well, I tricked him with the truth. As Bosch is talk, thinking to her, Bosch says, Bosch says, quote unquote from the book, I wonder if she was just that good or was belt that bad. And again, reputations precede you. Again, in this industry, I knew some top flight defense attorneys. And, you know, you, you again, you, you, you prepare yourself for them bringing their A game every day. Because if you don't, they will rip your ass apart. And just because they work for the defense does not mean that they are, are that they are um, less than or they can't do their job because most you know again the ones I dealt with again you, you, I had the whole the whole spectrum I had some of the guys who were just terrible and I had some guys who was just you know phenomenal and it's just like um, Harry says in this particular portion of the book was was Chandler just that good or Belk just that bad and maybe it's a little bit both because Belk should have. I mean, if he knew the case as well as he should have, he should really should not have walked into that trap because why is Chandler asking this guy some questions that's outside of his, outside of his previous um, interviews? And if it's new evidence, then they should have had a separate hearing about is he bringing up something new? And, you know, once they get back into the courtroom and Bosch watched this videotape and he said, he, you know, he had the feeling that something went wrong. And I tell you, that is a very sinking. Because you're like, God damn it. I know for a fact I did A, B, C, D, and E. And like you said, for the last four years, he was under assumption that he did not do anything wrong. And then that really, again, that doubt just starts to, you know, first it was this fog of doubt. And then you had all these different plausible explanations of you know what was going on, and but every one of those explanations are now being crushed. And here you have a videotape showing, at least for one murder, Norman Church did not commit it. So if he didn't commit that, again, is the doubt there? Now, now, now the doubt is not just some off the uh, out the way enigma. Now it's coming true. Here is um, evidence, you know, video evidence. You know what they say. Um, the tape is worth a thousand words. You know, excuse me, a photo is worth a thousand words. Well, a tape is worth a million words. And he, you, you see the Norman Church is here when the 11th um, victim was being killed. You know, I think I want to amend my earlier statement a little bit when I talked about Michael Connolly writing, you know, reference to the girth and the lumbering and of um, his description of Belk. <laughs> Mike was not letting it go. <laughs> you know, I was thinking of maybe some um, very highfalutin, altruistic uh, metaphor for the government in, in, in the whole. Yeah, <laughs> I think that a little bit, but like I said, I would amend it because here we see Michael just would not let go of his physical description of Belk. And, you know, uh, again, from the book, Judge Keyes turned over the witness back to Belk who lumbered to the lector without a jello pad. I mean, he, 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 he just keeps doing that over and over again. You know, his, you know, I just like how Michael just, um, it's just bloodstream. 
poor Belk. I'm starting to feel sorry for him. You know, so after, and this is very important. This, this right here is very important, at least to me. After the evidence is played, the videotape is played, and they adjourn for the, um, the lunch break. I think it's lunch break. And before they leave out, Belk and Bosch get into it. I know because I, I got a couple of people say that, you know, on, for this podcast that, um, well, I, I have a potty mouth. I do. I, uh, I'll be the first one to admit it. In our, in our office, we had a jar <laughs> that, you know, for every curse word, you had to put a dollar in. And at the end of the um, cycle or whatever, you know, month or whatever, that jar, we paid for lunch for everybody. We all got together, had lunch. And guess who was the biggest contributor to <laughs> that jar? Was me, yours truly. So I have a potty mouth, but so, but I, I don't, especially in this chapter, um, at the beginning of intro of this podcast, I wasn't trying to be gratuitous in my use of uh, profanity, but you know this exchange between Belk and um, Harry concerning if Belk believed him that they made this whole thing up that he shot Church and then all the police frame this guy and he said you believe him don't you and Belk comes back over the top and said it doesn't make a difference what I believe it does make a difference if the government attorney believes you because then if they believe you then they will give you their full-throated effort into defending you remember Bosch is the defendant for the government. He represents the government. And if your own damn government attorney doesn't believe you and is just going through the motions, then what are we there for? Um, or again, why did we bring the trial? Why, why did you bring it to trial if you didn't believe the evidence that I was presenting to you? Now, I guess, you know, Belk even said it again here in this chapter that if you would have, um, we would have settled things for $50,000 but then again, Harry said, you know, if you didn't go forward with it, then I was going to hire my own attorney. Well, if that's the case, if you didn't believe in the case, he should have never brought a trial because he's acting like he didn't believe in it because Chandler is just wiping the floor with him right now. She's just absolutely wiping the floor. And then it got just, again, that just ducks tail back into what I just said. Is she that, is she that good or Buck just that bad? But the fact that Harry told Buck, fuck you, when it concerns believing him or not, because that comes into question everything that Harry has worked for, his reputation. Hell, later on, as Bosch is leaving the, uh, the courtroom, uh, Brimmer runs up on him and asks him, you know, you know basically what you, what you're, what you're, um, what's going on there. I got to write about it. And Bosch said, what the fuck do you care? You know, you can, you can just write another book and get $100,000. And Berman says, well, dude, I have a, I have a reputation in, in this um, town. And Bosch said, I did too. I, you know, well, I do too, which is true. You can't do your job if you get tainted with this brush of, um, of scandal like this, of planning evidence. And could you imagine from that point on that he would, if he can't fight this back, if he can't defend himself, he will be forever taunted. This would never leave him for the rest of his career that he planted evidence. And, you know, no matter what kind of case he has, at the end of the day, someone will always bring that, back, bring that up. And, you know, see, then we see Bosch going to meet Ray Moore. And, boy... 
His description of depiction, excuse me, um, Michael Connelly's depiction of Mora was spot on. You know, well, let's back up. You know, Bosch says here that Moore made him uncomfortable. And I definitely know what he's talking about. Again, listeners, I'm going to keep saying it. So keep reading Michael Connelly's books because his depiction right here happened all the time. You know, I, um, I've done, um, I assisted prostitution units in raids and operations and all that kind of stuff. I never ran one, but I assisted them. Um, I was mostly like, hey, you know, maybe doing perimeter uh, security or running some people through the computer databases that I had access to, whatever, whatever, whatever. But on some operations, you met some guys who seemed to get off on it just a little bit too much. I mean, they came right close to the line of being inappropriate. Now, me, I gave that line a wide berth. I dealt with um, prostitutes throughout my career. And I had some great sources who were prostitutes. But when I dealt with them, it was 1,000% by the book. And it was 1,000% for a female officer. 100,000% 100,000% by the book because I went, I gave it a wide berth because, you know, last podcast, I talked about how my father had, did not want me and or my brother to join Vice. And this is one of the attributes that he was worried about because a lot of officers have gone down because they did not respect the positions that they were in. The mere fact that you come to that, that a lot of officers come too too close to the line when it comes to dealing with with the whole um, prostitution whole industry got a lot of guys in trouble, and so like I, said, I gave it a wide berth. But you know, you I met some guys that they just seem like, mm, dude. And, you know, a, a quick example of that it's just some of the guys that I, you know, there's one couple of guys I'm thinking about here. They just Again, like I said, I gave it a wide berth, and they came so close to the line that it made me uncomfortable. And I would look at them, I said, dude, do you know you're playing with fire? And so what I mean by, you know, um, let me, you know, be more specific here. If you met with a source, you always had two. You always ran in, in, in uh, we call it 10-4 units. You, you always had uh, your partner with you. You didn't meet sources by yourself because, you know, again, what we was taught in the academy, and it's true today, is that you are a get-out-of-jail-free card for any criminal. And what that means, what they mean by that, is if you decide to cross your toe over the line, that criminal who you're dealing with, they know that you're a cop. And so if they ever got in trouble, they can always pull that get-out-of-jail-free card. Anything short of murder that the criminal did if they say, you know what, I did blah, 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 but I know a dirty cop, then everyone breaks, everyone stops. You, you know a dirty cop. How do you know a dirty cop? Oh, well, this guy, you know, um, he does this, I do that, and this whole nine yards. So like it said, Michael Connolly did a great job. I, get, I, I lived that. Harry seems to have a problem with more, and I know exactly where that feelings come from. And, you know, again, he must have been around. He is in uh, Michael Conley, must have been around some vice officers because 
the look he gave, other than the cowboy boots, uh, and again, maybe that's a, a California thing, uh, that could be me. He described me and my vice days to a T. So listeners, when you read Michael Connelly books, the level of authenticity is there. It, and again, that's why I'm doing this podcast. You know, again, topical. I think I brought this up in the first um, podcast when it came to the Black Echo. And again, Michael has been in vice offices before. And the photos of the new, you know, the new calendar being, uh, that was plastered on the wall. I, I said it before. I, matter of fact, I remember talking about it with Eleanor Wish. Hey, guys, <laughs> police women. Back, you you guys were yeomans dealing with this crap because, and I'm going to admit it. I had it on my desk too. You know, it was just one of those. Again, I wouldn't call it a rite of passage for, but for lack of better word, you know, when you got the vice, you put all of these inappropriate. You know, not only your football, baseball, basketball team uh, up on the wall, but you you always had this very inappropriate <laughs> poster of your ideal woman on plastered on your wall by your desk. And here again, we see, we see uh, Moore has the exact same thing. Again, Michael Conley, he was embedded in, in, in LAPD. So he must've walked up on and or saw these, uh, these posters. And I, I'm not proud. I'm not proud, you know, nowadays, you know, again, you know, what's, what's interesting. I think someone told me a long time ago, um, this is before I was a father. And, uh, you know, things change when you have children. Thing, thing, you know, your perspective totally changes when you have children. Oh, so those, those pictures on the wall, I remember the day the captain, she was a, it was a female captain. And I'm not sure, was she the first? No, because I had a female commander before then. But I'm not sure what happened downtown. When, again, my metaphor, again, downtown is the same for pretty much anybody. When it comes to downtown, means the headquarters. So but I'm not sure what happened downtown, but our uh, captain, and her, she was a female, she came and just started ripping down those posters. And it was almost a mini riot <laughs> in the vice office. I mean... Everybody was like, "What the hell? You know, what, what 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 is this all about?" And she dared anyone to put any other inappropriate um, posters. But then, shortly uh, thereafter, some um, general order, some memorandum came out about the inappropriateness of those type of posters, and they won't be plastered on, on uh, any government uh, walls. And you know, again, it's just worth saying. Um, Michael, you know, how, how cops, we segregate ourselves. And it's not, you know what's interesting? Again, at least in my career, we segregate, us, we segregate ourselves not by race, creed, or color, but by profession. So um, in, right now in the book, Bosch is reminiscing about the times he was dealing with Ray Moore. And he said, you know, he would see Ray Moore at the different um, cop uh, eateries. And so again, this happened to me all the time. You would go to a particular place where all cops ate because we know we all ate together. Mostly it was at the FOP or something like that because you felt safe there. And when you get there, you saw people segregated in homicide, vice, patrol. Very rarely do you 
least me, did you eat with those other individual groups? You know, now I knew other vice, especially when I made, um, well, right now Ray Moore is in advice and advice in is like administrative advice for the whole department. So I knew everyone in my equivalent to advice. I knew everyone in advice. And if I saw someone eating, I would eat with them. But I also knew other vice investigators throughout the districts. And so if I saw them, I would pull up a chair and eat with them. But if I saw one of my buddies at homicide, eh, I would wave to him and talk to him. But I, you know, I need I broke bread with other vice guys. And again, it goes back to how authentic uh, Michael Conley is. And so now Moore tells Bosch that Magna Come Loudly is Rebecca Kaminsky. And she was killed two years after Church was dead. Again, boy, it's almost like I said, okay, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that Church had an ironclad alibi. He was not the one who killed her, but who the hell sent this damn note? And you know, I'm not, not going to be so presumptuous and tell Michael Conley what to write and how to write. But what they say, but, you know, in this particular portion, again, from the book, Bosch felt that he had to keep moving, to keep thinking. It was the only way to keep from examining the horror building in his mind, the possibility he had taken down the wrong guy. You know, instead of saying the horror building in your own mind, for me, there's a horror building in your chest. I felt those type of anxieties in my chest. So when Harry says, you know, he had to keep moving, so he went examine the, the horse building in his, in his head. Boy, I know exactly what he means by it because you're like, God damn it, I know. But maybe I didn't. But I know. But maybe I didn't. But I, God damn it, I know. But maybe I didn't. And, you know, so after he leaves advice, he is in Harry leaves advice and he goes back to court after lunch, after lunch break. You know, he comes to the defense table and he walks through um, the gate that separates the general seating from the different uh, the defense and prosecutor's table. And even Judge Keyes gives him a given the stink eye. Yeah, I, I've come in late before to um, hearings and that I was supposed to be set at, the, at, the, at the, um, the table. But I dare not. You know, especially when testimony is going on, because you don't want to draw attention to yourself. Again, there is this level of the jurors are watching you. And, you know, Harry's done a couple of things so far. And that I learned, again, I told you when I was rolling my eyes, how I got in trouble for just, just rolling my eyes. I got, you know, got admonished by the judge. And, you know, later on in this book, you know, Harry watch, looks at his watch a couple of times. There is some theatrics to being at the at the table at the at the head table, you know. You um, again, it, it's just just part of it. It's just part of you know you you you're studious. You, you take out your pen and paper. You write notes. You don't react again like Chandler did react when she messed up and stepped into it. When it comes to Norman Church being totally shaven, you know there there is some theatrics when it comes to at least for me. And you know, well Chandler has some sources. Chandler has Irving on the stand and you know, she's going through just the methodical dismemberment of Harry. And Chandler asks Chief Irving about Bosch's motives. And I don't know. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on TV. 
I think right there, Belk should should have objected, but he didn't. But so she was able to start artfully getting into Bosch's motives. And then that brought in all the information about his mother. But also she was, she brought in was the fact that Irving and Lewis and Clark had reservations about Bosch. And Irving kind of lied here because she said, well, didn't you have him under investigation before? And the answer was true. He did have Bosch under investigation with Lewis and Clark. Now, was it in reference to the, um, the Dollmaker case? No, but it was, it was referenced to it in the Black Echo. So, I'm, you know, as I'm reading this book, this particular portion, I'm like, okay, who the fuck is her inside source? She has a source, too. Goddamn, Parker Center is, is leaking like a sieve. And, you know, just, again, another line. And, it's again, so I fell in love with Michael Connelly's writing, again, from the inside information he seemed like he had with police. But then you can't just, you know, that's just not it. His just way of weaving words for this visual presentation just captures me, captures me to this day. Again, from the book, on redirect, Belka asked only a few questions, trying to rebuild a fallen house with a hammer, but with no nails. I mean, damn. And you know, the doubt is setting in, or has sat in. You know, we got all these things are coming up. But, you know, one of the things I like about Bosch's resolve, because when he was outside talking, to Ch- after doing a break, he's outside talking to Chandler. And again, he says, you know, again, I'm, pa- I'm paraphrasing from the book. Well, you're doing good, Bosch says, you know, but I guess you don't need me to tell you that. And then Chandler says, no, I don't. And Bosch comes back and says, well, you might even win. Hell, you probably will win. But ultimately, you're wrong about me. And she says, am I? Do you even know? And he pauses and says, yeah, I know. Because even though they might doubt him, he knows that he didn't go in there with some preconception and pre-motive to kill Norman Church. Now, he paid the price for going in there by himself. You know, I think even Harry would agree, damn it, I should have called. Matter of fact, I know for, he, he says it later on in the book, you know, when he examined the reality of uh, Norman Church not killing the 11th uh, victim. Why did he not call a backup? You know, he always, always told himself that he didn't want to bother anyone, that he thought it was some bullshit. But he should have. He knows. So I'm not second guessing him. But I do like, again, I like the resolve that he knows himself. He's not out here trying to dispense his own type of justice. Matter of fact, hell, he even said it back in the uh, Black Echo when uh, Eleanor Wish asked to talk to him about this, this case. And, you know, uh, she said to him, I know you can't tell me why you did it, but if you did it for the reasons what I think you did it for, you know, to get justice, then I wouldn't hold that against you. And, well, that was a good, that right there was a, right there was a big uh, <laughs> clue in Eleanor, the whole Eleanor thing is that, oh boy, you better watch out for her, Harry. <laughs> but I digress. So back in, court, in the court, Chandler uh, calls Dr. Locke. And remember, Dr. Locke is this psychologist who LAPD went to for advice, you know, coming up with profile of the killer. And as she is, you know, starting this, down this line of questioning, 
Belk objects, saying, hey, you know, Yara, what are we doing here? You know, she's asking this, this witness information that has nothing to do with this case, and he doesn't even write about Norman Church in his book, so I'm not sure why we're doing this. And the judge over, matter of fact, the judge even tells him, well, the time to object was 10 minutes ago, but, you know, again, the, that goes to, towards the laziness of, of <laughs> Belk. And again, so the judge overrules him. And as he, sat, as he sat down, you know, he says loudly, he got to be banging her. To somehow to mask that he's such a poor attorney, that she is in challenge could only be possibly beating him is because she's banging the, the judge. God knows she couldn't be beating him because he's a piss poor fucking attorney and she came better prepared and she knows the case better. And again, Michael Conley shows why you have to have your lead investigator at the table because Chandler, you know, Dr. Locke is up there and he's talking about different things. And then he goes into the black heart. And as he's about to, you know, talk about the black heart, you know, Belk is about to get up to object. And Harry holds him down, so, you know, forcibly holds him down. And, you know, Belk, you know, gives him the, the stink eye. And so when he, as he gives him the stink eye, Dr. Locke talks about anyone could have a black heart. I could be, have a black heart. I could be a sexual predator. Ms. Chandler, you could be. There's no stereotype when it comes to the black heart. And I think that was very helpful to Harry's case. And again, that is a good example, another example, why you need the, your lead investigator at, um, at the table. And, you know, we, saw, we see that Bosch, is, you know, Dr. Locke is finishing up, and Edgar comes into the courtroom, and Bosch says, you know, damn it, um, it must be something important because he wouldn't come to court. And you see Edgar's legwork going through the paper. They have uh, found a missing report. Reference to Rebecca Kaminsky. And but I also thought it was really cool. Cause you know, so far as as you know, I like I like Edgar. I like Edgar. But there's another thing I like about Edgar. He doesn't have such a big head about himself. Because he's he's like, hey, Harry, what would you do right now? I'm kind of at a loss. And again, any investigator who thinks he knows it all, like I said, I had. I've been, a, I was a, I got my um, first rank as a detective in 1992. So 27 years as a, as a, a detective. And I tell you right now, I learn from everybody every day because I, I subscribe to this. I subscribe to the theory. If you're not learning, you're losing. And just because you think you've been there, done that doesn't mean someone else didn't probably have a good idea, young or old. The fact that Edgar can then go to Harry, even though this is, this is his case, he's like, I'm, I'm, what would you do, Harry? That just elevates Edgar even more for me. The fact of the matter is that he, he doesn't have to have the ego because his ultimate job is to solve the crime. So why not go to one of the best people who can teach you or show you how to solve the crime, which is Harry Bosch? Just to show Bosch's fortitude, Michael Connolly keeps Bosch in and around RHD. So again, him and Edgar are down by Parker Center. It, you know, and so Bosch goes back to RHD to do some, some, some checks, some computer checks 
on the individual who reported Rebecca Kaminsky missing. Because as Bosch said, anyone reading that particular report could within two minutes see that was a cover your ass report. That the person making that report knew that Rebecca was dead and or had a feeling that she was dead. So he wanted, he or she, well, Tommy, he wanted to make sure he could always point to the point, point to the report, say, hey, I didn't know what was going on. I reported her dead. So the fact that Harry goes back to RHD to do work. Again, we saw it in the Black Echo. We saw it in the Black Ice. And now we see it again here, him showing up at RHD. You know, most guys, and I don't know about me, so I, I but, you know, I, I think I would do the same thing. Most guys, Harry's like, look, I, I got bounced out of here, but I'm, my head is held high. So, I'm going to still show up. I'm going to still use the place like I want to use it. And fuck you if you don't like it. And, you know, Michael Conley brings us back to the relationship with Harry and Sylvia. Because now Sylvia has been saying, hey, I want to come to court and support you. And Belk has just told him, told him as in Harry, that he will be probably on the stand the next, tomorrow. So, but Bosch decides not to call Sylvia and tell Sylvia, hey, I'm going to probably be testifying tomorrow. And so you see this relationship and, and I've, I actually, I've been bringing it up, you know, so far in this, uh, the, the, this is the third podcast of, the, of this, of this uh, book. I really want Harry and Sylvia to make it. And again, I'm not going to do any spoilers, but, but I, you know, being, from my experience, He's doing everything wrong that will cause him to break up with Sylvia. And it's, it's kind of sad because I wish he could trust Sylvia enough to let her see what everyone else is going to see. Because you know, if Chan's already telegraphed what's, what's going to happen. And I know that's the reason why he didn't um, want Sylvia there because maybe he wants Sylvia to have this facade a little bit or a safe place. But again, I guess he doesn't trust Sylvia. so. You just see it coming. You see this train wreck coming. You see this train coming down a track. It kind of makes me feel a little bit sad for Harry. And so after Harry gets a, uh, you know, he does the computer checks in California computer justice system. He follows up and finds out that is uh, the missing person, the person who filed a missing report was guy uh, Tommy Cerrone. And what does Harry do? Now he's already asked, Edgar, he said, hey, do you mind if I follow up on this? And Edgar said, no, go for it. But what, is, what, is, what does Harry do? Harry goes and follows up on the damn missing person report by himself. Now, he's on trial for doing something by himself. And Edgar was there with him. I'm thinking, Harry, Harry, you know, won't you just say, Edgar, let's go check this guy out together. But again, that's not Harry. That's not his style. He wants, he's a loner, but being a loner comes at a great cost too. And, you know, I guess he's willing to pay it. So what happens next? This, I do this. I mean, most cops do this anyway. Again, except the TV cops, you go knock on a door. So again, Harry is following up. He got an address to where Tommy Cerrone from, um, supposed to be according to his probationary officer. And he knocks on the door, then steps to the side. Now, that is true. 
because you know you're taught that you don't know what's on the other side of that door, and you're going into a strange neighborhood. We already saw, already see that people pick um, Harry Bosch out as a cop all over the place. He he doesn't have too many good uh, undercover skills. So he steps to the side of the door because you never know what's coming through that door. So again, I, I point these little things out, these little tidbits out because I said over and over again, but you guys, so you got the point. Michael is writing how cops really do things. So uh, a lady opens the door and you know, Bosch immediately sees that Tommy's not there. The pimp doesn't live there. And he was able to get a telephone number um, from the occupant of the um, of the apartment, after he gets the um, the telephone number, he goes out to um, the payphone. Two things happen when he's at the payphone. One, he's calling, you know, back to communications. Again, he did the same thing in the Black Ice. Excuse me, he did the same thing in the um, Black Echo, where you know you call communications to get a reverse directory. And he also says to himself, again, from the book, out on the street, he walked down to the payphone that was in front of the apartment complex. He called downtown communication center to give the operator the telephone number he had just gotten, and he needed an address to go with it. While he waited, he thought about the pregnant woman and wondered why she stayed. Could things be worse back in the Mexican town where she came from? From some he knew, the journey was so difficult that returning was out of the question. Topical. Isn't that what's going on right now in, 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 in 2019? Again, Michael wrote this book in, 2000, uh, in 1994. And it's remarkable that Michael Conley, back in 1994, was able to capture what's still going on now in 2019. <laughs> you know? Oh boy, you know Michael Colley again. He had did some work with his uh, his vice brethren or someone again. He had a great. He had a great tutor, a great inside person when it comes to police culture. You know, he called. He sees this as he called it, uh, strawberry. You know, uh, again, this female who would sell her body and or for sexual favors, do anything for crack or for money to buy crack. Now, I, where I'm where I came from, we call him a crack whore. He called him a strawberry. And you know what are the lies that I love? Because you know what? Again, I, I I had a prostitute as an informant, and one of the lies that that she says here is, "Look, man, I'm not talking to you. I'm not blowing you, so I'm out of here." <laughs> My uh, informant, she was that direct, and right now. Harry recognizes he put himself in a very vulnerable position because he, he says to himself, damn it, if anyone from Van Nuys Vice was sitting here looking what I just did, they'd be like, what the hell? Because he looks like a cop. You know, what is this cop doing giving this, this strawberry $20? And again, that goes back to being by yourself. These are, this is one, these are the perils of doing shit by yourself that if I had a partner there, then it could be, no one would think twice about it. And, you know, so then as Bosch gets an address to where Tommy Sarone is, you know, another place where Tommy Sarone might be, he comes up with a ruse. 
that's part of the uh, a detective's life. You always come up with different ruses, different ways to getting information. Um, because guess what? A lot of people don't like giving you giving you information. So you come up with different ideas, different ruses to get information or to validate information that you already got. So the, the ruse worked, and you know he gets into Tommy Cerrone's place. And he's dealing with, as he's dealing with the new Rebecca Kaminsky, because that's pretty much which this young lady represented to, uh, for me. Thomas Sharon comes in in the house. And again, even the criminals know, again, from the book, if you had a warrant, you wouldn't be here alone. No warrant, get the fuck out. See, they know too. Cops roll in twos. If you're not in two, that means you're doing something off the book. If you're doing something off the book, fuck you. I don't got to talk to you about anything. And you know, I like when Harry then comes back and says, Tommy, if you don't talk to me, I go talk to the parole, uh, your parole officers. And then how could you run your operation um, inside of jail? So he had him. He had Tommy right then and there. So Tommy knew that he had to then give Harry any information he needed. And he was asking about, he said, you know, I'm asking you about um, Magda, um, uh, what he called Rebecca Kaminsky, but he says, who, you know, um, Magda Kamlaoli. Yeah, what about her? And pretty much, you know, again, th- this just shows how much Sarone or Tommy or Pimps really care about these women. Because even Harry says right here, you sent her back out there, you knew something was wrong because the guy who answered the phone, who, who, who you sent her to, said he had a quote-unquote special need. And you even picked up on the fact that he said it through clenched teeth. But why didn't you not send her there? Because the almighty dollar. You know, he, he hoard her to get her to get some money. Now, he, he comes back and said, look, if I'd known that, you know, I put a lot of money into her, yada, 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 whatever, whatever. Let's just think about how dehumanizing that is. You know, oh, I put a lot of money into her, meaning implants and probably, you know, all that kind of stuff. So before he leaves, he says to Tommy, yeah, the lady who lives in your uh, other apartment, she doesn't pay any rent no more. And if I hear she, if I hear that she's left, left the country or even got another place, I call your parole officer. And Tommy says, well, that's extortion. He said, no, asshole, that's justice. take a break here and get into the question of the day. And the question of the day comes from chapter 10 of the Concrete Blonde. And it says, during the civil trial of the dollmaker, Honey Chandler utilizes the murder of Bosch's mother to sow doubt concerning his motives in the shooting of Norman Church. Question, is this line of questioning appropriate? And then the two uh, choices were, yes, it's, yes, Bosch is a public servant, and no, this is irrelevant. And as of the podcast, 62% of you said, no, this is irrelevant. And 38% of you said, yes, he's a public servant. Now, I asked that question knowing it would be provocative or, or actually hoping it would be provocative because it's topical. 
Again, Michael Connolly is writing stuff that's topical today. And I'm actually split. I'm split on this. And why am I split? It's because I want to give you, and I think the best way to give you an example is to tell your story. So be patient with me because it is kind of convoluted, but it, 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 I think it drives home the point of why I chose this question in, in this way. So back when I, I said I was a vice investigator back in the 90s, early 90s, and I had a supervisor that made Harvey Pounds look like a saint. You would want, I would want Harvey Pounds than this, this one particular supervisor. And this supervisor was a motherfucker. Now, I think in, I wish, um, I can't remember what book that Harry explains what a motherfucker is and how we as cops reserve that for special people. But let me just say, this one supervisor was a motherfucker. So I say, okay, say, Phil, well, damn, what did he do? What did he do? So we were doing a operation with FBI. And just like in the Black Echo, we were doing this round robin around a car and, you know, we had plans. We weren't, okay, you know, FBI, we want to help FBI out with a search warrant or whatever. And while we were there, this one sergeant, he was just ripping me, you know, he was joning on me, making fun of me the whole nine yards. Because actually, to be quite honest with you, I was in awe, you know, the big first time working with FBI. And he was making me look so small. And so... I said, hey, Sarge, you know, that's not kind of fair because you're you're hitting, you know, you're joining on me. You're cracking on me. I can't do that back to you because I'm going to get in trouble if I do. And he says, go ahead. You know, I, I don't mind. Do what you got to do, Phil. I mean, you, and so, and he said in front of witnesses, so I proceeded to just rip him a new one. I mean, it was unmerciful. I just made everybody just was just cracking up on this guy. I mean, and, and he, you could see, he was seething, but it's not one fucking thing he could do because he told me, go for it. So we finished with the raid, whatever. I get back to the office and I'm typing up the report. I was doing the search warrant report, which is self-explanatory. You do a report on what happened during the execution of the search warrant because I knew this report was going to be turned over to the FBI. And I did, admittedly so, I, the verbiage that I used was very long, very convoluted, very intricate verbiage. Um, and, and I did it because I was trying to impress the FBI. I can admit that. I was trying to impress them. And so, you know, but before I could submit the report to the FBI, I had to submit it to him for approval. And so I typed up, like I said, I'm talking about, you know, the old pecking typewriters where the hammer comes with his arm and goes back and forth. And I think I told you in prior podcasts, my supervisors did not believe in whiteout. You didn't do, you didn't do whiteout. So he comes out of his office. Who the fuck do you think you are? Keep this report. Who are you trying to press those FBI guys? And then he just started taking, took his red pen and just started raping across my report. And then he threw it on my desk. He said, do it again. And I looked at him. I said, do you a motherfucker? <laughs> so he yells, I heard that. I heard that. Everyone in the office heard that. And he asked me to write a, a, a statement to that effect. So I knew what was going to happen. So my statement said, the sergeant took my report, scratched it up, and I called him a motherfucker. 
<laughs> so, because that was true. I wasn't going to lie. And I wasn't going to put my other officers in the position to cover my ass, which I got my temper, my temper, uh, temper got, got the better of me that day. And I paid for it. I got suspended for, well, I think maybe one or maybe two, maybe one or two days. I can't remember. And I got suspended for um, either was insubordination or conduct unbecoming. I want to say insubordination, but, (laughs) you know, uh, shit happens. So fast forward 20 some odd years later, um, I'm not a lawyer and, um, I'm going to, you know, give you my interpretation of what Giglio, a Giglio statement is. Again, my lawyer, lawyer uh, colleagues out there, please, if I do this, if I butcher it, help me out here. So that disclaimer, pretty much Giglio says, amongst other things, but reference to me specifically, is that if I had any, uh, any, if any, my credibility, if my credibility could be called into question. So if I lied, case in point, if I lied on a report or I was found to be deficient when it comes to processing evidence and I was the person who collected the evidence or some things like that, again, things that go towards my credibility, that information should and will be disclosed to the defense. Okay, sounds sounds reasonable. I mean, I'm not arguing that. That, that, that sounds reasonable. You know, the, the attorney was asking me, you know, these questions and I said, well, yeah, yeah, I had a sustained adverse action. Oh, really? What, what was the adverse action? And I gave them the same story that I just gave you. And so we're going to have to probably disclose that to the defense. And I, I looked at him and said, well, why? Well, I, I don't understand. Well, you had, you know, sustained adverse action. I said, but I didn't lie about, the, you know, if I, if the adverse action was that the, you know, the, the, the department found that I was deficient and or, and or I misrepresented or something like that. Of course, you know, that's, that's I'm not arguing that. But for me to, to have to, you know, bring up something that happened 25 years in the past that, again, I told the truth. So there is no, in fact, the, 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 if you pull the IA um, investigation, the investigators who came out, it says it right there in the report. Officer was telling the truth. He, he was honest in his description of what happened. We recommend that he, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. So the attorney looked at me like, okay, I don't get the, what are you so concerned about? I, I said, I really don't give a shit. But do you understand what you were putting cops through? Did you go to, did they, they, he did what the, he did what you supposed to do. He did something wrong. He admitted it. And he took the, the, the consequences behind it. And now, you know, the case is only thing that's going to come up about this case is that it just goes back to what we, I was saying about Belk. You know, fight for me. Let, let, let me feel that we're in the fight together, opposed to I'm out there by myself. And that's why I asked that question. He is a public servant. And I said, you know, and, and, and you, all bets are off when you're a public servant. But to what extent are we holding cops accountable again there's a fine line and I think I hope the tone was set from the first podcast and again if you haven't listened to the first podcast please listen to the introductory podcast and I I, I'm just keep saying it over and over again I'm not out here defending dirty cops what I am saying is that they are people and you we are getting to a society where they're going to be robots and 
you know, justice and uh, the practice of law enforcement is a breathing thing. You know, how many, raise your hand. How many of us have um, the speed limit is 55 and we gone and we gone 50, you know, 60 miles an hour? You know, is it an asshole cop who gives you a ticket? Or would you want him to understand, him or her to understand, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I know I was speeding, but, you know, or how would you feel when he comes to the car and he's stoic, non-responsive, in a sense, not showing any emotion, and goes, driver license registration, please, the speed limit is 55, and I clocked you doing 60 miles an hour, can I have your driver license registration? I'm like, really? Is that the kind of, I don't want that type of cop. I don't want that type of cop. I want to. I want to be the type of cop that I was, where I listened to your story, and I found it better when I had a rapport with people. Hey, look, I'm out here. You know, I'm out here because there's been a, 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 an exorbitant amount of access on this road. Um, they want to do zero enforcement. I see you got a, you know you got a baby in the car. Do me a favor. Be patient. I'm giving you a warning. You know it. I know it. Have a nice day. I mean, I, that right there, you're talking about community policing. That right there, you know, so the citizens know you're out there, you're doing your job, but they understand life goes on. Yeah, it was only five miles an hour and over. And again, I'm using the extreme here. But that's where we're heading by holding these cops to this unrealistic standard. Because the only thing you get there is because, again, I'm sorry to be so long-winded on this because I'm really passionate about it. If you haven't picked up on it, I'm really passionate about this because I saw it when I was doing surveillance. I saw police just riding by and not engaging the citizens. Now, that we had what is called beat integrity. If this was my beat, I knew everything that's on this beat. As a police, uh, as a patrol officer, I knew everything went on this beat because that was my beat. And you didn't have to call me first. Oh, I was I tried to be proactive. But you're asking cops to be, not be proactive anymore. And again, again, my brother and I, we set the tone. And I'm not going to say it anymore because, again, I hope you listen to this podcast because you trust me. And you trust the type of police officer that I was. But we, we really, 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 really have to take a look at, yes, hold police accountable but let's hold them to a realistic standard. And asking me to testify about something that happened 25 years in the past, where, again, if you took, that's all it takes for the prosecutor to read the IA investigation and said he was honest. Next. But no, that was too easy. That was, again, that was lazy like belt. Oh, we're going to turn it over to the defense. Why? So, I digress. Thank you for let me rant. I had to get off my chest. And, you know, also, um, this podcast is just going to be a little bit longer because what I did, what I wanted to do was give you some other police perspective on civil trials. And again, I told you I'd never had a civil trial. But, you know, I was out to uh, lunch with um, my old partner, Jackie Garish. And, you know, we were talking about the podcast and I was, you know, telling her about the, con- you know, she's read The Concrete Blonde. And so I asked her, would she come on again and give her insight on, you know, The Concrete Blonde. And she also happened, you know, to do some work in prostitution. So it was a twofer for me. So sit back, relax, and 
listen to the interview with uh, Detective Jacqueline Garish. Jackie, welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast. And I'm in a portion of this uh, podcast where we're going over the, cro- the concrete blonde. And when we were out to lunch, I was telling you about the, um, this portion of the podcast and where, and where Harry is being sued civilly. And I didn't have any experience with that. And I know you did. Well, you told me you did. So if you can, very generally, give a description of what happened um, that caused you to then have a civil case filed and then the outcome of it. Okay. So um, this happened when I was working in patrol and I was actually working a footbeat in an area of the city that has a lot of pedestrian and vehicular traffic, particularly in the evening hours. Um, It's a very, very busy area, especially on the weekends and evenings. Um, So while I was working in the area, I had a person who was walking in the street. And because the the sidewalks get very crowded, um, we would try to, you know, usher people back into the sidewalk to prevent them from being struck by vehicles. Um, So when I asked the person to get up on the sidewalk, uh, the person didn't take too kindly to it. Uh, We exchanged some words, and then that person decided to shove me into the street, into oncoming traffic. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So um, I arrested that person. Um, That person was transported up to our station, and I processed uh, that person. And then about six months or so down the road, uh, I was contacted that I was actually being civilly sued. Um, Okay. So, much to my surprise, um, I was personally named on the civil suit. Um, So, I was contacted by, um, it's a body that uh, is, represents us when we are, um, when we need representation during civil proceedings. Um, They're attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, And this attorney uh, had to file some paperwork so that the officer is not specifically named as in the lawsuit, but rather the police department is named. Okay. Um, so once those changes were made, um, we had to prepare um, to go to a hearing. And um, now I have to mention that these attorneys um, normally are handling municipal regulations um, things of that nature, not so much um, major crimes. So a lot of them do not have experience in working a lot of these investigations. Right. Um, they don't have right. trial or hearing experience. Um, so you're not really getting like the cream of the crop when it comes to an attorney to represent you. Right. Which is unfortunate, but um, that's that's just the way it works. So um, we did prepare. We did go to hearing. And, um, and ultimately, um, I was actually being sued for false arrest and (laughs) and the person, the person got on the stand and said, um, how I was very polite and how I didn't do anything wrong, but they should not have been arrested. Um, so I was not found at fault for anything. Um, and I'm. I want to say that there was some type of a settlement. I don't recall because it's, you know, been right. almost 30 years. Um, but that was my one and only experience um, with it. But it, it definitely opened 
to um, the personal liability that we're exposed to when we're working on the street. Well, now, one of the things I remember you said during our lunch was the sense of the attorney. Um, and I think you had to educate the attorney in some fashion or form. Did I get that correct when we talked about that? Or did you get a sense of, like you just said, hey, this guy is not the sharpest tool in the shed and you were really kind of worried? Uh, well, I think the, the biggest thing was that they just didn't have the experience. They really didn't know um, the ins and outs of something like that. And right. I was I was still a very young officer. Um, so it's not like I had a lot of experience either. And this was my only experience with the civil proceeding. So I was worried. I was definitely worried. Um, and I also saw that, you know, the government was more willing to enter into a settlement just to be done with it rather than kind of stick to our guns and fight because we knew that we were in the right. And, right. and so, that's something that's a hard pill to swallow when you know you didn't do anything wrong and yet this person is going to get paid money. Well, you know what? Let's talk about that because... And again, I never had any experience with a civil case, but you're not the first person I've talked to who said, you know, that a lot of times these attorneys, they choose to settle. And that actually then perpetuates, perpetuates um, other people suing the government. And just because this is what the government's going to settle. And do you get that same sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, and it can be a vicious cycle when you have. Um, especially when you have a body who is supposed to be prosecuting the crimes who do not necessarily do it aggressively and they may drop the charges, not because the crime wasn't committed, but just because it doesn't meet their threshold or whatever their, their office policy is, even though legally mm -hmm. it, it, it qualifies as it. And then they don't realize that that opens us up to civil suits and civil liability. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm, I think it's very common. And I think a lot of people realize, you know what, I might get arrested, but I can turn around and sue them and I'm going to get paid in the end just because I know the government doesn't want to have to deal with this. It's a hassle. Right. Well, you know, and again, in our jurisdiction, I'm not sure if this is nationwide, but our jurisdiction, have you ever heard of in those type of proceedings, hell, almost even in criminal cases, but let's stick with civil, that someone gets up on the stand and just comes up with this most outlandish story. And then we prove that they, that story is not true. And then the government doesn't, does not go after the person for getting on the stand and perjuring themselves. Because even though it's a civil hearing, you still got to provide truthful testimony. Oh, in my almost 30 years, I've never heard of them ever going after somebody for perjury. Never. Right. Right. And again, we are, we as in law enforcement are, you get this sense of, okay, that's part of your job. You get sued. Yes. But if a person goes up there and lies and, and it basically has nothing to lose, um, then you get kind of jaded. You know, I, I, I know I would. I would get kind of jaded to say, hell, what's, what's the use? They're not going to, one, fight aggressively against this allegation. And two, they're not going to then, the person up, up there lying. I mean, this day and age of body cameras, you get somebody on the body camera, evidence that they're getting up on the stand lying, and they still don't go after the person's actually perjuring themselves. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, and I think a lot of officers have been frustrated by that saying, well, maybe I need to sue those people. Maybe I right. need to you know what? and sue them for, you know, because if we show that they have perjured themselves and they're filing these suits against us when there's a basis for them, then maybe we need to turn around and start thinking them. Well, you know, and then see, that's the cycle of the, that starts this cycle of, of uh, non-trusting. I mean, again, I know you agree with me. If there's an officer who's out there doing something wrong and by all means, again, I didn't, I haven't asked you this question because I just know you. We, we do not back bad police officers. Yeah. But in the same token, if there's a good officer out there being falsely uh, accused of something, then with the same um, enthusiasm that you went after the police officer, let's go after this, this particular citizen who actually is creating this, this atmosphere of mistrust because then cops are always on defensive and when it comes to uh, dealing with the um, cit- citizens. Am I, am, do you, am I, um, is that relaying that pretty clearly or am I doing a bad job? No, no. And I think that's true because a lot of these attorneys, they don't realize, oh, sorry, they don't realize that this is something that can follow an officer through their entire career. Um, right. You know, and that can affect them having to testify for many years down the road and being um, being considered not credible. Right. So right. And, and, don't and, realize, and again, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. You say you don't realize. Go ahead. I'll cut you off. No, I, I just don't think that they realize um, the effect that that can have just because they would rather take the shortcut and take the easy way out. And when ultimately it hurts the citizens, uh, it hurts the community because one, they're paying out a bogus claim. Two, then it, it then makes that officer um, be as more distant. You know, again, one of the things that is a common theme so far in my podcast, and again, when we grew up, you know, quote unquote, because we're old timers, but when we grew up, the interaction with the community was way more personable than it is nowadays. And at least for me, I see the difference is it's twofold. Both people are responsible here. You know, again, um, you know, the Rodney Kings and and the, all those type of things have caused a public awareness. But in the same token, every cop is not those of Mark, so Mark Furman. You know, every, every cop that you see isn't a bad cop. So there has to be some trust there. And I know I was able to do my job better when the community trusted me. Exactly. Exactly. And when you have settlement, I think that um, a majority of the community is going to assume that we did something wrong. That's actually a great point. You know, if, yeah, if you have a settlement, then the majority of the people, that's actually a great point. They think that, well, the police actually must have did something wrong because why would they settle? Not knowing well, they settled because the attorney handling the case said, you know, it's just easier for me to sell the case and move on, opposed to not understanding how detrimental that is to not just the police department, that's the officer, the police department, and um, the citizens uh, as a whole. Exactly. So, so also... I uh, want to ask you, because I know you did a, a tour in um, the prostitution unit. And again, just to recap, I'm on the portion of the, the Concrete Blonde is that his victims were prostitutes. 
And you were then telling me a story how you got recruited to work with the prostitution unit. If you can uh, let my uh, podcast listeners know that, give, give me that story. Um, so I actually had um, gone down to the prostitution unit and was trained in street level prostitution, um, particularly reversals. And um, so okay, okay. explain, explain reversals. So that means that I would be a, a decoy standing out on the corner. And when I was approached by um, a person, uh, I would wait until they solicited me and then I would give a signal. My arrest team moves in and we arrest them. So it's a very simple um, reversal operation. Um, but we were advised that if while we were doing these operations back at our our uh, respective districts, if we were approached by a pimp, um, kind of what to do, what steps to follow, and then to reach back to the prostitution unit and contact them so that um, they could work um, a case on on the pimps um, if we were okay. approached by a pimp on the street. So um, there was a person who specialized in um, solely, um, you know, the girls working on the streets and the pimps. Mm -hmm. Um, so while I was doing one of those operations in my district, I was approached by a pimp. Wow. Okay. And, um, and I pretty much did what I was told, you know, I, I got a contact number, um, for him and, uh, he kind of went through his spiel. Cause I mean, well, tell me, tell me a spiel. Give me a spiel. What did he say to you? Well, you got to understand Ooh. these guys, they're, they're basically common. Okay. They, they can con you into working for them. So they're going to tell you how um, you're attractive, how um, you can make all this money, how they're going to take care of you and house you and buy you clothes. And, um, you know, they make it seem, um, they make it seem like an ideal situation and that you really shouldn't be on the street by yourself because it's dangerous. And if uh -huh. you're out there, they're going to protect you. And so they kind of give you that whole sense of security and, right. um, and mislead you about, you know, you're going to make all this money. And um, so once we ended that conversation, I did contact prostitution and that particular detective who specialized in it. And um, so I went back down to the, that unit and we kind of set up a whole scenario um, to kind of lay out, lay the groundwork so that I could meet up with the pimp and um, hopefully get a solicitation out of him to support right. a, a higher charge, which would be a pandering violation. Right. Um, so that's what we did. We, we set up this operation. Um, I pretended that I was a maid working at one of the um, nearby hotels. And I told him, look, I'm going to have my lunch break. Um, why don't you meet me in the park? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we can sit down and talk. So that's what we did. Um, they wired me up, threw a maid's outfit on me. And um, I had, you know, all of the, the team members out there with, um, with all the surveillance equipment. Everything was being videotaped, audiotaped. And I ended up meeting the pimp in the park. And we had about a conversation for about an hour. Um, again, kind of the, the same things he reiterated that, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'll buy you all these mm -hmm. clothes. We'll get your nails done. You know, you're going to make all this money. And, um, 
So once that detective felt that we had enough in that conversation to support a pandering charge, he gave he gave the signal and the arrest team moved in and locked the pimp up. So this so was this pimp was he a you know I'm those stereotype you know did he have the flashy clothes I mean we're talking back in the 90s so did he have the the silk suits did he have the stereotypical pimp bling or did he look like a a regular normal guy Um I guess some people might might not notice it but I think anybody who was trained um, in prostitution would notice he was wearing, it was summertime and it was hot. So he was mm-hmm. wearing all silk, a silk shirt and six silk shorts. Okay. Um, <laughs> but he had like, he had like the kind of like short kind of Jerry curl hair. He was driving a Jag. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, they, they, at that time they were still very, very well known for being on the flashy side. Okay. Now, when you dealt with prostitutes, I know you dealt with, you know, you were in the prostitution unit. Did did those type of women seem more susceptible to that type of um, that type of uh, spiel, if for lack of a better word, that type of approach, as you said? Oh, yeah. did, did you see a com- did you see a commonality with these 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 women? Oh, yeah. Um, so after years of interviewing them and kind of putting together like um. I don't want to say an MO, but but you like you say, you look at these commonalities and a majority of them were runaways. Um, mm-hmm. They were women who were abused at some point, um, a lot okay. of them sexually abused. Um, so a lot of these women have a lot of issues going on um, and they a lot of them, you know, had left their homes and they felt like this was a group that moved in and replaced that family and that security wow. that they that they craved and so right. um and and they were very vulnerable i mean a lot of them did not have money they um and ideally they were always removed from the area that they came from because that is part of how they manipulate them is isolating them from any family any friends anybody they want them totally dependent on the pimp right and the, right, pimps, wow. and the pimps would would actually convince them that they love them and they cared about them and and you know and in return if the if the girl cared about the pimp she would be willing to go out and work the street and give all of her money to them and most people you know most most of the public don't realize that these girls do not get to keep a dime of their money everything goes wow. to the pimp i mean if that right. girl wants a cheeseburger from McDonald's she's got to go ask the pimp for money Wow. That, you know, so they get victimized uh, over and over again. And did you find it hard to convince them to, to lead, to leave the life of being a prostitute? Oh yeah. Very, very difficult. I mean, it was unbelievable the brainwashing that had been done to them because they truly believed that these pimps were the only people and the only family that they had who cared about them. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, Jackie, I like to hit uh, hit and run, <laughs> and you're my sniper when it comes to these type of uh, uh, experiences. And again, I like to give my listeners a, a, a very broad view of law enforcement and what it's really like. So I appreciate. Again, I didn't. I I was the one. Uh, my uh, prostitution experience. I dealt with, as you said, I was part of the surveillance team 
when you were out there doing your, uh, you know, the operations or something to that effect. So I didn't actually have experience working those type of cases. So your expertise is, is definitely, definitely appreciated. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast again. Well, thank you. And that gets us to the Everyone Counts or No One Counts segment. And Everyone Counts or No One Counts for the Concrete Blonde chapters 9 through 12 is my girl, Honey Money Chandler. And right now for these four chapters, she is slaying it. She's riding a wave. She's setting people up. And so far in these four chapters... Belk is not even touching her. I mean, he he's watching her. He, he at times Harry it looks like uh, Harry's mentioned that Belk has stopped writing and he's starting to watch um, Money Chandler, Honey Chandler do her thing. And even Harry said, "Damn, I wish I had an attorney like Honey Chandler." So Honey Chandler is doing what she she was hired to do. It's her job, and she's supposed to put on the most vigorous case for her client and it just happened to be at the detriment of our boy um, Harry but it's necessary and so she's giving it up <laughs> she's you know, she's uh, kicking ass and taking names right now so again my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapters 9 through 12 is Honey Chandler This concludes chapters 9 through 12 review of The Concrete Blonde. Wow. I know that was a long one, guys. So thanks a lot for being patient with me. Well, you guys have always been patient with me from the very beginning and even to to now, you know, from the quality of the podcast and to now, you know, and, and me getting better at this whole podcast thing. So I'm never going to take you guys for granted. So thank you very much for being patient with me. And again... Thanks for Jackie. Thanks for for lending your expertise. You know, it, you always uh, stepped up to help me out, and I really appreciate you continuing to support me. So, as you know, um, keep going on to Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, and continue to rate me five stars or better. And those comments, my goodness, comments, comments, comments. Any feedback especially this episode because it was so long and there's a lot of things we touched on. If you liked it, let me know. Or again, you know, if, if you didn't let me know if I'm not, if I'm not clear and, or you wanted me to say something, please bring it up to me. Any way you want to reach out to me, Facebook, the uh, website or whatever, I will, re- I will respond. 
And you know, it's also appreciative because I get, I, I said it before, the podcast is growing. And that means you are telling your friends and family about the podcast. So if you could continue to do that, um, I really feel as though we're at the infancy of something because we have, uh, we only three books. We have uh, so many other books to go with Michael Connolly. So, and it only gets better. You know, the content, it just keeps building on itself. So again, if you can keep continually to help me grow, please do. And don't forget, go to www.thethinbluelinepod.com where you will find more investigative content concerning Michael Connolly and Harry Bosch. So next up on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we will continue our deep dive into the Concrete Blonde, chapters 13 through 16. I'm 10-7 for the remainder. Bye.